Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 85, Hadley Powell, Art Advisor, recorded on January 5th, 2019. My name is Julie Faithan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Chu Balzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Why don't you quickly catch me up on your gigantic art project of your house renovation? So my endless eight month uh, big art craft project here, it's going pretty well. The basement is probably about two weeks away from being done, which is really exciting. And uh, we're hoping that the permits come in for the rest of the house to finish. But we've been looking at tile and, you know, it does remind me of an art project, the house in a certain way, because it's like you kind of want to pick out all the glittery, you know, shiny, fun, pattern filled, colorful things when you're looking at you know, tile and wall colors and all this kind of stuff. But in the end, it's, you know, if you throw all of that stuff into the house, it's going to look crazy. You sort of need a neutral palette to be able to use other things like furniture and etc. And yet at the same time, that's what I find happens in my art too sometimes, which is like, I'm so excited about the color and the pattern and the exuberance of it all that I forget that you need like the white space, the resting spot, you know, something that somebody can like not have to be completely insanely overwhelmed at at every moment so in that sense I feel like there are lessons from the house that I hope I'm taking into my art all right well I love seeing your pictures so keep up the good work well the good news is I'm like a new mama I have to show pictures of like holes in the ground to everyone I see on my phone it's very sad (laughs) yes enjoying your basement exactly So speaking of new mamas, our guest today is Hadley Powell. Now, Hadley's experience spans from old master prints to contemporary art, and she started her career at Christie's in New York as a specialist in the prints and multiples department where she researched and cataloged prints from Rembrandt to Rauschenberg. Um, She also worked in the Impressionist and Modern Art Department, uh, where she worked on the evening sales, where she advised clients on buying and selling at auction. And so this sort of leads into what her business is now, or at least my understanding of it, as a private art advisor or art buyer. So welcome, Hadley. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. And it's great great to be here. I'm so excited that you're here, and I think you have a super cool job, and I just want to tell people, so the way that Hadley and I know each other is through the Museum of Fine Arts um, and the Museum Council there. Now, Hadley, you've been a member of the Museum Council for a really long time, right? About six years now, ever since I moved from New York to Boston. Yes. And did you, so you joined right away when you moved to town? Exactly. I was looking for um, an art-loving community when I moved to Boston from New York because I had been immersed in the art market in New York and a a big-time member at MoMA and the Met, and I just loved those groups. And so when I moved to Boston, I reached out to a couple of friends who had been involved with the Museum Council, and they invited me to an event, and I uh, met Frederick at that event, and I just totally fell in love with um, that community. So it's For people who don't know, Frederick is one of the curators. Yes, he is a curator of um, European art um, and really knowledgeable and has been an active Museum Council member. So it's really great because the organization partners with a lot of the museum staff. uh, So you get this sort of behind the scenes access to curatorial programming and other programming at the museum. So my experience, because I also was in New York, is that those groups that like MoMA and the Met for that are for essentially like young arts supporters are very different than the MFA's Museum Council. They're bigger. Yes. And I, it's, I, I felt the exact same way. You know, I felt like um, 
it was a, a really huge organization and I joined with friends from work or from school. And so I always sort of mingled with my existing friend group when I was at those events and they were wonderful, but I have found with the museum or with the MFA that I've met so many people within the museum council itself who have become great friends. And it's a, it's a smaller group, it's more intimate, and I find it to be a little bit more friendly. Yeah, I think, you know, groups are always hard to crack of any kind. I mean, I would actually say in some ways I find this true about Boston and Boston's art scene in general, which is that there's something more, that, maybe it's the size of it, it's the people, it's something, it's just slightly more accessible than New York was always, like, insanely overwhelming, too many people, a lot of competition for airtime. Absolutely, I totally agree. So let's talk a little bit about um, Christie's like that must have been a really that's an interesting program, extremely well known for people who don't know. Will you just talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. So Christie's is a internationally well-known uh, auction house. It uh, started in the 1800s in London and then moved to New York in the 60s. Um, it is it, the auction span many, many collecting categories. So you can buy wine, you can buy fine art, you can buy furniture. It really, they sell a little bit of everything. Um, and they sell some of the most prestigious items that come up for auction. So Christie's and Sotheby's are the two major players in the space. There are also a lot of really wonderful auction houses that are regional. So we, in Boston, we have a number of great auction houses, but Christie's and Sotheby's are sort of the biggest players in the international space. And what I did there was um, catalog and all the items that would come in for auction. So when I started in the print department, I sat in a warehouse and everything that was coming in for auction, I measured and I did condition reports for, and I built, built the catalog for that that would then go out to our potential buyers. And then um, when we were sell, when the auction was coming up, I would meet with potential buyers to look at the works, talk about the works, and and help them buy the items at auction. So I want to unpack so many interesting things that you were just talking about. So the first is like putting together the catalog and all that kind of stuff. Because if, if anybody's ever seen the kind of catalogs that Christy puts out, they're, they're like books. I mean, they're interesting and informative and they have pictures and like you do. Because a lot of people don't actually show up to the auction house to make their bids. They bid exactly. on the phone. Yeah, they're really beautiful. And it's amazing that the, 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 the size of the team that puts together the catalogs. So when I was in the Impressionist and Modern Department and working on the evening sale, um, we had a team of writers who were researching the artwork um, and putting together really beautiful essays that, you know, a lot of these items, this is the first time they've come up. They've been in a private collection for maybe 60 or 70 years. And this is the opportunity to do some scholarship around them. So we would partner with well-known scholars in the field or just the team at Christie's to write beautiful essays. And then we'd also have them professionally photographed and color checked um, so that they could be presented to this audience in the best way possible. And that was a really fun time because you get to basically, like you said, put together almost like a coffee table book about, about the artwork that's being sold. And we, as the um, works come in for the auction, so there would be two auctions a year in this in New York in this specific category um, and as those we were putting those catalogs together it was always so interesting because different themes might come out and that's hard you can't really curate an auction like you would a, a museum exhibition because you don't always know what work you're going to get to sell but it would be really neat to see certain 
themes or threads that you could kind of talk about throughout the catalog. I am curious about um, how far out, like how much, what's the timeline on an auction? Like, do you say when somebody says, oh, I want to sell this stuff through Christie's, is it like, okay, well, we need six months to ramp up or we need two weeks or what is that timeline? So in New York, the Impressionist and Modern sales would be are every May and, and November, so about six months each. But then they also have major sales in London as well. And those would happen sort of in between the season. So if depending on the calendar, if you were interested in selling something and you wanted to sell it within three months, we might say, you know, the next sale is going to be in London and then and the audience um, and buyers potentially for this artwork are all based in Europe and would be really interested in this. So we'd recommend that you would sell it in London versus selling it in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's all part of the strategy in selling the, the item. So I know that you were majored in art history in college. Did you know what you wanted to do with your art history degree from the beginning or did you just like art? Um, no, exactly. I did not know. I just loved art. I had grown up going to museums with my parents. I loved travel. I got really excited about history and learning about how the visual um, visual nature in the art world um, is can play in with with history. And so I sort of pairing those two was really interesting to me. I interned in a museum while I was in college because I was thinking, you know, maybe that's the trajectory I want to go and I want to learn if I, if getting that, you know, a master's and doing curatorial work was the direction I wanted. I learned a lot and I learned that I was much more interested in the market side of things, uh, which led me to Christie's Education, which is their master's program. Christie's and Sotheby's both have um, master's programs in New York and in London. And I did the Christie's program in New York, which was fabulous. It was, it really is sort of like a business school for the arts. I would, I mean, so let's talk a little bit about the market side of art versus the curatorial side of art, because in an interesting way, I think your job now, you kind of do both. Absolutely. Um, I do think about the the curatorial aspect of my work a lot right now, especially as I'm advising clients and building collections, which is a lot of what curators do for museums. Um, But I'm also very cognizant of the market. So what are things selling for? Do we need to be updating appraisals? Do we need to make sure that the work is being cared for in a way that will make it last for generations? Um, So I'm very cognizant of what things cost and what things are sold for. Um, Different artists watching their rise and and the the rise of an artist is really um, closely aligned with museum exhibitions that they're having, uh, the gallery that represents them, different people who are collecting them, the scholarship around them, are they being written about? Um, So all of those things really play into the market for an artist. So I have a question for you, which is if just like, obviously you do a ton of market research in order to stay up on that. Do you have like, is there like a daily list of websites, papers, magazines, like places that you go, or is it sort of more just like you accumulate over time this sort of base of knowledge by going to things and getting out there? It's a little bit of both. So I definitely, there are like blogs and um, news media outlets that I check every day. So Art Market Monitor is a website, is a um, blog that I look at every single day. Um, they don't post every day, but I basically pop in and just see what they've done. And they really cover the last ones. Um, they also cover the art fairs and they cover... Um, 
what things are selling for at the art fairs, which is really interesting to me because you can always get that information directly from the dealer. Or if you're not at the fair, you can get that information. Um, obviously, the New York Times, I, I read their art section. I read the art newspaper. So a lot of press that I, any press that kind of comes through. And then obviously just talking to people, you know, so in Boston, there are local dealers and gallerists who I know. And so I'll talk to them about, you know, who are they interested in right now? What studio visits have they gone on? You know, what is, what are the themes that they're sort of finding throughout, you know, their discovery of different artists? So here's sort of a taste question, which is obviously, I mean, you're a, you're a collector for yourself, right? You buy art mm-hmm. that you like as well. Mm-hmm. But then when you're buying for other people, I guess I'm wondering, are you able to put your own like personal taste aside and go more for stuff that is sort of market related? Or are they hiring you partially because they align with your personal taste? Um, my taste, I do set aside because you know, my taste is very specific to me and to my home and to my my background. And so I do try to really listen to my clients and talk to them about their lifestyle. What are they interested in? You know, what are what are the things in their life that they care about? And how do they live? All of those things really impact the artwork that will be hung or installed in their homes. Uh, so what they hire me for is my expertise, that I can make sure that they're buying things um, at the right price, that they have access to the right artists and to the right galleries, because it's not as transparent of a market as I think it could be. And so it's really helpful to have me or someone who knows the field have conversations with my contacts and open up doors to different, to having access to different pieces. And do you find that most of your clients are buying art as an investment or just because they want to decorate their homes or, you know, is there any kind of like major stream or is it all over the place? Um, I would say it's definitely thinking about decorating their homes or just supporting the arts generally. Um, I really try to stay away from the investment bit just because it's so risky and it's really not um, an area that I have confidence in. In, you know, I, I think that I, I, I always look to make sure that an artist is being priced correctly and I don't want to buy something that's in a bubble and I don't want someone to overpay for anything. But I also don't want them to think that this is going to be the ticket to their child's college tuition. You know, I, I <laughs> some people think like that. And so I, I always say, you know, I want you to be buying great things. And if they do appreciate and value, that's wonderful. But that's not your 401k. Um, let's leave that to the market, different markets and different professionals. So a lot of times people will come to me, especially new collectors. They have a beautiful home that they've recently decorated and they have empty walls and if the house doesn't feel finished. And so a lot of times that's, that's the, the entry point collector that I'll start working with. I do also do work with other established collectors and I do some collection management for them. So helping them manage the artwork, um, do shipping, uh, museum loans, all sorts of different um, ways of sort of how their collection is is changing or, or living with them. I assume that collection management includes some sort of cataloging for the people, certainly for insurance purposes, but potentially also just so that they're aware, especially if they have multiple homes or whatever, where everything is. Exactly. And so I, there are a lot of different um, 
online cataloging resources that are out there. Um, and that's a lot of it kind of comes full circle because that's what I started my career off doing was cataloging for those print sales. And so that's a really uh, fun part of it is, is making sure that everything is documented. We have all the invoices in our system. Uh, that's exactly we, how we manage locations for if something is in a different home or gets moved or is being restored or in transit. Um, so all of that is managed through a database. That's very cool. So did you do any art advising when you were in New York or you only started your business once you had moved to Boston? Yes, only when I was in in Boston. I was at Christie's 100% full time. So I, in the back of my mind, kind of thought this is where I ended up. I was always wanted to end up being an art advisor. And so Christie's was an incredible opportunity just to learn and be immersed in the in the field and in the space. And I had sort of an end goal of being an art advisor, which when I moved to Boston became more realistic just because there aren't as many players in the space. Um, like you said, the space is small, smaller and a bit more open. And so I found that I could kind of create a business that was viable here. And how did you get your first client? That must have been the hardest one. Exactly. So I partnered with a dear friend of mine who I actually had gone to Christie's education with, who is an interior designer in Wellesley. And so she was the one who really kind of pushed me to do this because she has clients who are looking for art and she wasn't ready to be offering art to them. She was too busy doing their, the rest of their homes. So she, she asked me, would I join her on a couple projects? Um, and it was something that I had been, you know, always wanting to do. So that was really the opportunity that kind of launched me. That's fantastic. Can you talk a bit about how the process works? So if a new client comes to you, can you walk us through what are the kinds of steps that you will then take with this person? Sure. Uh, so first thing is, is that initial meeting and really kind of trying to get to know them and understand what their goals are. Are they looking to be a major collector? Are they just looking to decorate their home with a couple pieces? Uh, that's the really the main objective is just to sort of see what the scope of work and the project is going to be like. And then getting to know them and getting to know what is their level of interest. Are they um, the type of person who wants to go on a studio visit or go to a gallery or an art fair with me? Or do they want me to do that like work and just bring them a couple options that they can pick from? Uh, so that's really where I sort of start. And then I talk to them about what aesthetically are they interested in? Lots of people have a sense for what they like, but they don't have the vocabulary to describe it. So I sort of will do a bit of education there and take them through different genres and different styles. And we will earmark what, what we like and what we don't like. And then I'll start sending them things because looking is to me the most important thing you can do. And I often really want people to take a little time and just look before they make an actual purchase. And people are eager to purchase because they want to fill their walls, but I don't want them to make mistakes. So we spend a while just looking at things and getting comfortable with things and talking about what resonates and what doesn't before we actually make a purchase. You know, I actually went to an artist talk recently where the artist said she often, because she sells her work on the internet, has people buy paintings and she has like a two week return policy, which is basically, yeah. you know, you haven't seen it in person. You can, I'll ship it to you. You either ship it back in two weeks or the sale is final, right? And so somebody in the audience, of course, said, well, have you ever had a return? And she said, you know, only once in all the time. And so I'm yeah. wondering, like, does that happen to you? Do you end up with returns? I have not had a return yet. 
um, that's a great thing to think about. We have often, if something is, there's interest and they haven't seen the work in person and the object is say in New York or LA or someplace not that they can't come go travel to locally, uh, we will ask the gallery to ship it to us so that we can sort of purchase it with upon review. And that really helps because it's so important to see an object in the space. You really have a hard time knowing what something is gonna look like, how you're gonna respond to it just from an image. And so that I think helps reduce that return rate problem uh, because, because they've actually seen it in their space and maybe lived with it for a couple days. Often I'll ask a gallery if we can, you know, borrow something for a day or two, just so that the client can see what it looks like in the morning light or in the evening or, you know, coming home from work, how does it make them feel? Cause that it's a, it's a major decision. It's, it's not buying a couch. It's, it's an emotional decision too, in many ways, you know, an artist has um, really put their blood, sweat, and tears sometimes into an object. And so it, it, it's alive and it, it can completely change your room. So someone needs to be ready for that. Yeah. And I also think like, I know I say this all the time. I talk a lot on my blog and stuff about going to museums and how important it is to see art in person or galleries or whatever, because I think scale is so hard to tell from a photo. You just have no sense of it. Absolutely. I think like the details, either like, you know, some paintings that have a lot of actual texture, that's so hard to communicate in a photo. And, and there's even stuff I think now, specifically now that there's so many new materials in art where something has a shine or a glitter or a glow mm -hmm. or changes in the light when you walk past it, that you just don't know if you don't see it in person. Absolutely. I mean, I think scale to me is so important because I always think, how does my body physically respond to the size of this, this piece? Is it immersive? Is it huge? Is it small? Um, you know, how does, how does that, that bodily reaction? And, and that's something that's, like you said, impossible um, to sort of understand through Instagram. And I love Instagram because I love the ability to do some initial research and, and sort of discovery but it is really valuable to see things in person and really see the color and, and the texture. There is so much that can be lost um, and then in the nuance of the work just through an image. So do you go so, f I mean, is your business so far as like when people are asking about art that you tell them like, this is where it should hang in your house and this is how much space you should have around it and don't hang anything else like X clothes or are you just like, here's the piece of art, put it where you want? I, I help people from the beginning all the way through the installation process. And that includes framing. A large part of my business is actually doing a lot of frame consulting because framing can be really hard and it's hard to make a decision. And there are so many different ways to frame something. Um, so I, I help with framing, uh, matting, any sort of preparation for the work to be actually installed. And then I will help with either hanging it myself or finding a fine art installer if it's a really complicated installation. But the height is really important, making sure that it's nailed into a stud. You know, there are a lot of different elements that you want to think about when you're hanging art to make sure that it's safe and that it's presented in the best way possible. Um, also, just thinking about lighting is also really valuable. If you can have great lighting, it can really, really change how the piece um, pops off the wall. Yeah, you sent some photos and I, which I will include in the post about this podcast that really shows some spotlights on the work and you can see how they sort of jump off the wall in that sense. It's incredible to see. Um, it's also incredible to see when there's a great paint job. You know, there's certain um, paint manufacturers that really think about how 
you know, what's going to be on top of the wall. Um, and so I've seen some beautiful paint work really well with different artwork. And it's, it's amazing when that happens. Because that's really when you have, you know, this is this is not necessarily a gallery setting. This is someone's home. So um, when you when when things like lighting and the paint, it and it all kind of comes together, it, it really sings. Yeah, I was going to say I have noticed too that a lot of museums have stepped away from white walls and now have many galleries that have colored walls because it changes the way you view the art. Yes, and I love that. I'm so sick of the white cube, in large part because it's just not how people live. And so I love seeing moldings and fireplaces and just more more um, textures and comfortable materials, wood. Um, one example of that that I was really struck by was in the Ansel Adams show at the MFA. The main room has this gorgeous dark green wall that I just like instantly just kind of fell in love with. And I think that it makes the black and white photographs and then the really beautiful black frames just pop off that wall. Yeah. I thought that because I think like certainly black and white photography can feel cold. Sure. And that really helps too. I am curious too about um, when you were saying that you like might buy from a gallery or something in New York or somewhere else, do you almost always buy through galleries or do you ever go through an artist directly? It depends. So if the artist is represented by a gallery, then I go through the gallery. Um, if the artist is not represented by the gallery, then I will approach the artist directly. It just is sort of a case by case situation. Um, but I, I will work with both. And then also I buy at auction. Um, buying at auction can be a little trickier because of the timing. So if, an, if a client wants something within the next couple months, and there's a, a schedule, then we have to sort of work with that schedule and auction house can be that can be tricky because we might not get it or the auction's not going to be for a few months um so i tend to go sort of initially my first stop is looking at galleries that i you know have worked with in the past um but i definitely buy directly through artists as well well it's so complicated now because i know a lot of artists who are not like they don't let anybody exclusively represent them you know they really prefer to sell what they can online and then like have some gallery shows here and there and so you sort of never know Etiquette wise, like if you are introduced to an artist through a gallery, do you always buy through that gallery, even if they're not the exclusive representative? Or can you go straight to the artist who is selling direct from their website? You know, it's complicated. It is. It absolutely is. And you do. You want to make sure that um, you're doing it the right way. There's definitely a process and you don't want to make sure that um, the gallery who's been either spending marketing dollars on the artist or has been putting a show up for the artist, you know, gets their, their portion of that. But if, the, if you, I do think if you found the artist through either Instagram or their own marketing or just through, you know, that, that connection or relationship, then I tend to go through the artist directly. So I read an article recently that I thought was fascinating that was about how there are, there are a lot of strings attached to art that's sold nowadays, the really high ticket stuff where, you know, you can't resell the art, you must donate it to a museum, you can't you know, sell the art through a different gallery, you have to go through the gallery that you bought it, you like artists who want to say where you can hang it in your house and stuff like that. And so I'm wondering two questions, which is one, have you run into any of those situations? Um, and two, sort of what are your general thoughts around those kind of like uh, parameters that artists and galleries are trying to put on art that they sell? I have run into those situations, but it's always been really clear cut and straightforward from the moment I started interacting with the gallery. 
Um, and so that to me is fine because they've set those parameters and, and they've been really clear and communicated them. Um, but it does change the way you think about your plan for the artwork. Um, often it will be, you know, an artwork is promised for an exhibition that's coming up. And so if you buy it, then you need to make sure that you fulfill that promise and the work continues into that exhibition. Um, and, and so that is, it's, it's, it's the way it's a way that a gallery can kind of control their market and, and manage their artists. And so I understand that, you know, in especially for certain artists who are incredibly popular and hot right now, um, museums are clamoring for them or different artists or different collectors are clamoring for them. So the gallery can put those parameters on on, on the sale, and, you know, because of that, that that demand is there. Okay. And uh, how do you feel about, uh, obviously, one of the things that we talk about on the artist side of thing is, is that as an artist, if I sell you a painting, I retain the right to like sell prints and stuff of it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes collectors don't like the idea of like, they've bought the original, but other people can sort of sort of still get it, so to speak. And that's, yeah, I think that's so interesting. You know, it's sort of the copyright is still maintained by the artist, unless you buy the copyright, which would be, you know, buying, you know, the artist could try to sell that to you as well. Um, and so I think that those are all conversations that savvy collectors and savvy artists are having up front. And do you talk to your clients about any of these kinds of issues or do you just sort of navigate it all for them and then they don't have to think about it? I definitely, if there is something that I think might come up, I definitely talk about it with the client because I want to make sure that, you know, it's, it's on their radar or that they know that it's on my radar in case something happens that they either didn't anticipate or they, they wouldn't have agreed to, you know, I want to make sure that they know about all of the terms of the sale. Absolutely. Now you post a ton of, you have a great Instagram and you post a ton of photos of you seeing art sort of like everywhere. I feel like, do you, how often do you go and to either a museum or a gallery? Is this like an everyday thing? Is it a, you know, multiple times weekly? It's not every day as a, you know, but I definitely try to see artwork as much as as I possibly can, just because it's how my, I train my eye and it's what I love. I'm really passionate about it. Um, and thankfully my husband is as well, cause I drag him, especially when we travel to lots of museums and galleries, but thankfully he's, he's interested in it as well. So it has become really a huge part of our lives. It actually feels not just like work anymore. It really is just sort of what we're passionate and interested in. Um, so, you know, definitely on the weekends, we try to see a show that we haven't seen yet. Um, when we travel, like I said, we're always looking up um, what are the galleries or museums in that location. Um, and that has been really enriching and a, and a great way to learn about a different place and a different culture. Um, and so it's something that's just fun for us in many ways outside of, outside of we're going directly for clients. I mean, I, I will obviously be going to um, art fairs for clients and to galleries for art for clients during the week. Um, and then the weekends, it's usually more just for my fun enjoyment. I always think it's nice. I, I always tell people, I feel like I live in that happy place in the Venn diagram where the circle of what you love to do and what can actually make money, you know, overlap. 
And that's the ultimate goal. I mean, I think that's when I was thinking about my career and my future. That's sort of what my ultimate goal has been. Um, and becoming a mom was a big part of that is I wanted to have a, a career where I could structure um, what I was passionate about and, and having the opportunity to do that while also managing my time a bit more, which is really a valuable thing to me. So let's talk about that. I know I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you're a new mama and you are, baby G is how old? Six months? Is that possible? Uh, Four months. So she's eight weeks. Yes. So very, you're a very new mama. And I know it's probably hard to tell at this point, but it must have sort of changed things drastically. Absolutely. I mean, it, it definitely makes me, I think I prioritize my time so much more rigorously than I did in the past. You know, I have a limited, you know, my schedule is just tighter and my working day is just tighter and there's just more going on. So I, I multitask and I'm, I find that when I'm working, I'm incredibly focused and really want to just get, get the work done in the time that I have to get the work done. Um, so it, it's definitely changes the way you approach everything. Um, but is the most fulfilling thing, I think. Um, I also feel like I just have a whole new perspective on life, which is <laughs> sort of like a grand statement to make. But um, I think it changes the way I see artwork. I think it's made me more empathetic. Um, it really, you know, art changes you. And, and so I, and just understanding the human experience a bit differently, um, if that makes any sense. It makes so much sense because, and I've always said this, which is, you know, you we love voyeuristic things, right? You're, you're watching TV. It's like, you're looking at somebody's life. You're, you know, listening to gossip, whatever it is. Like we like that feeling of having understood something, but you don't really, you know, get it until it happens to you. You don't really get what it's like until you've been fired from a job. You don't really get what it's like until you've dealt with a big illness. You don't really get what it's like until someone you love has died. Like all those things are true. And I think, you know, part of what is magical to me about art both about making art and about viewing art is that you bring yourself to that experience. You can't help but do that, right? So you and I can both stand in front of the same painting and have two totally different reactions. And like in a sort of trite way, if we were to look at a Mary Cassatt painting, which is of course, she's very famous for her mothers and daughters, you know, I don't have children. So I would probably be thinking of myself as the child in the photo and you and the newborn would probably be looking at it and thinking of yourself with your child. And that is two different completely different experiences in the same moment of the same painting. Absolutely. Uh, And just, you know, new emotional states. So I have a new level of worry for this little human being that I can now sort of feel like I can empathize with artists who might be communicating a struggle they've experienced or, you know, it's, it's, it's that shared um, human, human experiences that like you just said, it's so profound and, and until you've experienced it, you're right. You just, you can sort of empathize with people, but you don't really know it. Um, and so I, I now have this sort of, whenever I'm at a coffee shop and I see a, a woman with a child, I like stare and smile at her. And then I realize I don't have my baby with me. And she's like, why is this woman just like staring at my child? Um, but, uh, it's definitely, definitely changed me, I think for the best. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of art that you personally like, like what is the stuff that sets you afire and makes you super excited? Um, well, right now, a couple artists who I really love. I love um, Beatrice Milhaes. Are you familiar with her work at all? No. 
Um, so you can check her out. Um, she's a Brazilian artist. Um, she does really beautiful, colorful collages and in mixed media. So she'll have the collages will have, you know, um, layers of thin paper with thick paper with painting um with silk screen you know it really is a whole mix and and as a latin american artist i think like i'm excited to see um her really rise up into the mainstream and now she's selling at major auction houses um and i i've, I've loved her work for a really long time it's really colorful and fun um another artist actually who i, I just acquired a couple of his prints is an artist named Jeffrey Gibson, who I also adore. Um, he is, his artwork is very text-based. So he will take quotes from different songs or poems, and that is incorporated into his artwork. Um, and he's a, a Native American artist or man um, who also is um, gay and um, ha really looking at how his identity is sort of impacted um, his artwork. And so he's one artist who I think has also brought a lot of um, the imagery of Native American art more into the contemporary art mainstream. He's really bridged that. Um, and, and he's incredibly eloquent and, and just a great thinker and, and has had a, a, great, a great show at um, his first sort of uh, mid-career retrospective is happening right now. It started in Denver and then um, went to Mississippi and then um, I think it's in Seattle right now, and then it finishes in Madison, Wisconsin. So he's an artist who I've been really enjoying watching. He does a lot of work with beading. Um, he does painting. He does weaving. Um, he makes three-dimensional objects. He does he does a lot of different things, and he's really I think thinking about life and and the, our contemporary moment really critically and interestingly. So actually, I want to just talk about, because you mentioned beading and weaving, which are both Native American traditions, among other things. But they're also, in a lot of ways, uh, they have been relegated into the world of craft for a long time yeah. for people who that's not necessarily, you know, uh, true of, I guess, is what I would say. So I, I, there's always this question that comes up about, like, what's the line between art and craft? Like, sometimes when men do sewing they're like oh it's art but if women do do you know what i mean that oh that's oh, a quilt that's craft absolutely and and that's something i think ceramics also have fallen into that um pottery and that's also something that's really breaking into the fine art space and i think the relegation of those the weaving or fabric or fabric or fabric fabric medium object is also something that was historically um sort of organized in that way and is now really changed, which is exciting to see because I think that, um, I think they all, the material, it's not that you can't look at fine art as just painting and sculpture anymore or drawing. It's really expanded into all of these media. And it's it's really exciting to see how that has, has transformed and grown. So I have to say, after having tried to do some ceramics, I can see that ceramics needs to enter into the fine arts because it is really, really hard. <laughs> They're amazing. Uh, Vitamin C, which does a is a uh, annual publication, just did a whole uh, last year did a volume on ceramics, which was really exciting for these incredible contemporary ceramicists because they kind of are now finally getting their voice heard. And it is amazing. And I love your photos. I love seeing you 
on the potting potter's yeah. wheel. I feel like a sixth grader when I bring things home that are terrible and misshapen, but I love and I'm so proud of, and it took me like eight, you know, sessions to make. I feel I feel very proud. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to ask you, because you had mentioned drawings, and I know that when museums put up a lot of, like, paper projects of various kinds, they can only be on display for a brief period of time. Yes. Is the, I mean, so if we have those objects in our house, like, what's the deal with that, I guess? I would just be sensitive to light. Um, so for any work on paper, especially if you're framing it, just make sure that you're framing it with any UV blocking uh, plexiglass or glass. Um, I definitely recommend plexi because it doesn't break. Um, there are a lot of different varieties um, that are, you know, run the gamut and you can get a really high-end museum quality non-reflective plexi that will protect it from the from the UV. But also hanging it in a, in a spot in your home that doesn't have direct light is really value and really important. So a hallway or a corner of your room that doesn't isn't near a window can protect your works on paper. And then if they're really valuable, treat them like a museum and rotate them. So what a museum will do is they'll hang a, a work on paper for a couple months and then they'll put it back into a flat file or a drawer, put it back into storage. And that's something that many collectors do is they'll enjoy a piece on their wall for a couple months a year and then put it away and put something up else up in its place in order to sort of prevent any additional um, light staining or colors fading. I'm curious about 3D work because we've talked a lot about like paintings and drawings, but sculpture I imagine is harder to buy for a home unless people have either a lot of outdoor land or some really big space inside or it's a very small mm -hmm. sculpture exactly so any sort of tabletop piece is very doable you know you can put that on a table or a um, in a bookshelf or anything, depending on, you know, something that's, I'm thinking like a foot tall or a foot and a half tall that wouldn't need to be installed sort of with a foundation or anything. And if it's, um, you know, like we were talking about ceramics or clay or, um, that's something that's very doable in the home. Um, but anything that's larger and heavy and could topple over is really important to make sure that it's installed correctly. So if it's an outdoor sculpture, often it would need to have its bronze, it would need to have a, a foundation put in. So, you know, a cement pad that goes in the ground that the piece sits on or is, is a, a, a fixed to so that it doesn't fall over and hurt someone accidentally. Um, so do you collect uh, everything, sculpture, prints, paintings, like all sorts of stuff, or do you have sort of a specific area that you particularly like? Um, I collect everything. So I'm sitting in my living room right now, and I'm looking at, I have a ceramic work that I my husband recently got for me. We have um, a, a print by Joel Shapiro that I bought at the Mass Art Auction, which I love. Um, I have... Uh, and two more prints and then two more paintings. So it definitely, I, I collect all different media, um, all different types of artists, some completely emerging, some more established. Let's talk a little bit about the museum council, sort of looping back to where we started. So you are the president of the steering committee of the museum council, which has a lot yeah. of responsibility. <laughs> uh, well, officially chair. Chair is the, the proper title, but it's it's the greatest thing. I mean, I think that this group, and I'm so grateful to have you as a fabulous vice chair. Um, it's really all about the team and, and the community building. 
So I have to tell you when, uh, when, when I originally, somebody asked me to do this job and I said, well, is it just more meetings and stuff? And she was like, oh no, it's exactly what you're doing now. You know what I mean? Just a little more like responsibility. And I was like, okay, which is clearly not true. Um, <laughs> but uh, I assume, because I think you definitely have to check in at the museum at least once a week, if not more often, right? Yes. Um, so I have a, a weekly call. It's a, just a call, though. I'm not always at the museum. Um, and so it definitely requires, um, we do a lot of planning. You know, we're thinking about this group of donors who have um, been really generous with their donation to the museum. And we want to make sure that we are thinking about events and programming that will engage them and they'll continue to learn and love the community. Um, and we also think about how, what we can do to really activate those people because you know, just like you have so many talents, we'd love to make sure that the people within the museum council who are coming to our events are getting to use those different talents, either through hosting something or being an advisor or joining a different committee. Um, so it's, we're definitely thinking about how can we can make those connections for people. So now that you uh, are have been with the Museum Council for so long, do you find that you still are meeting new people or do you find that you gravitate towards the people you already know? Because now you know such a wide circle of people. Um, I, it is amazing how fun it is to be constantly meeting new people. I think that's one of the, the pieces of the Museum Council that I love so much is that um, making friends can be hard when you're older, you know, you're not in college anymore, you're not in school. Um, and so it's really valuable to be constantly meeting new people and making new friends. So it's a little bit of both. I mean, I have great friendships from, uh, from the, over the years at the museum that I cherish and I feel so lucky to have made those, but then I'm constantly, um, engaging with new members and it's a fabulous group of people who are all really interesting and smart and, and bring a different perspective um, and a different and have different goals for why they've joined. So I'm really excited about new members and meeting new people as well as as well as those existing members and, and building those relationships and and connecting new members to existing members so that there can be that kind of cross collaboration. What's your favorite collection in the museum? Oh, that is a great question. Um, Are you a member of any of the curator circles? I'm not. I've actually been going back and forth about joining the contemporaries um, just because it, that department is really changing now with um, Rato having joined as the new head of the contemporary department. And he's brought on a couple new people who are exciting to me. Um, and so I've been thinking about joining the contemporaries. I've also been interested in joining the photography uh, uh sort of curator circle, just because that's a, an area that I really enjoy, but I don't know as much about. So it's sort of an area that I'd like to continue to learn about. Um, I'm thinking about, well, I love that the museum is encyclopedic because there's so much there that I don't know anything about, or I know very little about um, from like my art history survey 101 course. So whenever we go into like the Greek and Roman wing and have a curator speak about that I'm just so fascinated because it's an area that's not that an area that I haven't studied as in depth um I obviously love the impressionist collection and I love our we have such a um large collection of Monet which was for which is exciting to me because Boston you know in the late uh, or early 
19th century became this tastemaker for um, Impressionism. And uh, Monet's dealer, Duran Ruel, came to Boston. And a lot of the Boston collectors bought this avant-garde work at the time. And that seems so different from sort of the traditional Boston aesthetic of um, being a little bit more conservative and loving their landscape paintings. And so um, I I think the Impressionist collection is so important and and very, very beautiful. You know, I think that one of the things, uh, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, one of the reasons I really love the Museum Council is that I think like art education, the more you know, the more interesting things become to you, you know? And I think that 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 is a huge part of both, like the experience of going to a museum is just familiarity, right? You, you see, the first time you see a, a painter and then the second time you're like, wait, I've seen that work before. Oh, wait, I start to recognize this genre or wait, you know what I mean? I can sort of pick out these materials and stuff. And I think, uh, I assume that, you know, that's also part of, a huge part of your business too, obviously, is the education of people into like, not just like the market, but also why this painting is potentially more interesting than that painting or wh- even, Absolutely. I was gonna say even distilling to someone, because I do think people have trouble verbalizing a lot of times what they like or don't like about something they're looking at, because you either you're like, I like it, I don't, but it's hard to say why. And I assume that you're always trying to elicit from people that why, so you can figure out how to buy the next piece. Absolutely. And and thinking about having that that toolkit, I guess, is is a way to way to sort of approach it. Like when when you're at the museum or you're looking at an art a piece of artwork that's completely new to you, but having a set of questions that you want to think about. So like how was this made or why was this made or what is the artist thinking or what is the artist's goal? Um, having all of those questions and asking yourself those questions as you approach new art can really help you sort of understand what's happening or just think of new questions to then ask the curator or anyone who knows more about the piece. Yeah, I think that uh, very occasionally, I went to an artist talk, I still remember this, and it's the only time this has ever happened where after the artist talked about her work, I liked it less. Mm. (laughs) Which is such a terrible thing because most of the time what happens is the artist talks about their work and you're like, oh my God, there's so much more than I thought and now I really get it and now I'm really, you know what I mean? Sure. And I think, again, like... That is, I think a lot of times we think about going to museums, but I think galleries and gallery talks, a lot of times it's free, you know, and sometimes they feed you and give you drinks, Um, (laughs) you know, and it's just a great opportunity to hear from living artists and to really like see art up close. Yeah. And I think it's like, you're allowed to have your own opinion. So the artist might say, this is what I was thinking when I made this, but you're coming at it, like we've talked about with your own history and your own perspective. And so when I was in grad school, they really didn't emphasize biographical reading of the art. They really were like, look at the art for yourself, um, apply your own reading to what's going on here. And so that was something that was sort of how I was trained. And then when I moved into working for Christie's, we really brought back the biography and really brought in more about what the, was happening with the artist at that time in their life and why that um, impacted the artwork. And so I think there, when you look at contemporary art, especially and the artist is living and, and you can talk to them, that adds a layer and is interesting, but you can also apply, always, you know, apply your own reading of, of the artwork. 
Um, and I think that's, that's the beauty of art. And so, you know, hopefully the artist or the gallery will bring more light and make you like the piece more. Um, but if it doesn't, and you still enjoy, you know, if you, if that, that, that understanding of the piece doesn't add to, to your understanding, that doesn't have to limit your interest in the piece. Yeah. I think, you know, I took an art history class that was really all about like what Clement Greenberg had to say. And I think that that for me has always been a really difficult way of viewing art. The idea that there's a right way or a wrong way or that like this is good because and that is bad because I think that stuff is helpful. And that's why I love it when curators are opinionated and when people are opinionated because it is back to the Mary Cassatt question of, you know, standing in front of that painting and have two different experiences of it. I think it's fair to say, okay, well, I know all this, but I still feel X way or Y way about it, you know? And I think that, you know, they're trying to establish a framework for understanding artwork or trying to, when you're trying to compare a couple different artists and say, okay, well, this is better than this, but why? You know, I think that's what that Clement Greenberg was all about, understanding what's good, better, and best because they want to apply some critical discourse to it. But at the end of the day, if you say, well, this makes me feel this way, or I like this because of this, you can't argue with someone's opinion, you know? And, and so well, I think- you can try. To- I feel like most of the, these days we do try a lot to argue with people's opinions. Yeah. And, and that's, that's sort of, it can be a, 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 n- a never ending fight or a never ending conversation. Um, and so trying to create some sort of established, this is good for this, these reasons, either technical acumen or the way it is, their artist is able to articulate their, their goal um, is a way of sort of framing that conversation. So mom, you've been very, very quiet. And uh, I know you're quite a collector of art and you just sort of buy what you like. Do you want to add anything? Well, I have some questions. Um, One of them is, I was thinking that, Hadley, your job in some ways is like that of a real estate agent. It's actually got some similar uh, aspects. Looking for a house, first, it's really the aesthetic of the buyer potential buyer is a really important factor and then there's the issue of whom do you as the agent serve the you serve the buyer but there's also you want to keep relationships with the people on the other side with the real estate agent on the other side who in this metaphor would be like the gallerist or Mm -hmm. the artist they're just a a lot of uh, kind of resonances between working in real estate and doing what you do. The thing you're buying, the value of it is always subjective, dependent on a lot of different factors, right? And uh, uh, does that metaphor work for you or not? It does. It actually really works. I, I actually always thought about this particularly in the auction business because um, there is that you're kind of working out with both sides, the buyer and the seller. And so in many cases, and, and real estate agents do this as well. Sometimes their client, you know, they have a client, they're selling a work for a client and then their buyer is buying that house. And so they kind of have to be on both 
both sides. They have to talk out of both sides, which is, or think with different brains, which is sort of interesting. And and that's exactly how it is in the auction business. Um, you know, you'll have as a specialist, you have clients who are, and you're encouraging them to sell a work, and so they decide, yes, okay, this is the time I want to sell this work. And then you're going to your clients who are buying, and you're saying, I really want you to buy this work. And that's exactly what a real estate agent will do with a home. It's a very similar analogy. I also was wondering, um, without discussing your personal situation, if somebody were to engage a, an art advisor, what can they expect in terms of financial outlay? It, it really depends. You know, people will set up their businesses differently. So some people will take a commission on the artwork that was purchased. So maybe they'll take a 5% commission, which is also similar to a real estate agent. Mm-hmm. Um, or they will bill hourly. So depending on how much, um, how many hours they spent, sort of like a lawyer, they will, they'll say, you know, I worked for you for five hours and this is my rate. So that's what they'll charge. Um, so there are a couple different models that different people use. Some um, advisors are, if they're working with a client sort of over the long term, they'll be put on a retainer and, you know, charged a monthly. So it, it's sort of like a, any kind of consulting practice. Okay. Um, so in your mind, when you're working with someone, you're sort of doing what, let's say Netflix does, you're working, you're developing an algorithm of what you think that client would be interested in. Yes. And serving them recommendations. Exactly. So is there anything to be said for showing them something which might not be in that algorithm, but which might be something that excites them and turns them in a different direction, or is that generally not useful? It just really depends on the client. You know, I always am trying to encourage people and pushing them a little bit out of their comfort zone uh, because art, you will change. The more art you see, the the savvier you're going to get, the more you're going to, you know, push yourself, hopefully, um, and that you will change over time. So I don't want someone to buy something and then be bored with it in six months. And so I definitely am always thinking about what is something that might push them a little bit so that in two years, they're going to think, oh, I really love this. And I'm so excited I have this and it continues to stimulate me and it continues to engage me. Um, And so that's definitely something I'm trying to to make clients think about. Um, and I'm also trying to encourage them to look outside of what they think about on the day to day. So if it's an artist who has a different program that, um, might resonate, but is new to them, I I like to sort of share that with them. So that gets me to this question of what is currently fashionable in art, in collecting and, what kinds of things you see as possible new directions because what's happened now with the internet is this this desire to find somebody something new has sped up and has become an important piece of uh, acquiring art and it's become kind of um, so you you don't have to go to uh, Basel, but you can see everything that's there on the internet and you can hear people chatting about it. And there's like this desire to somehow root out something that no one else has found and 
I was just wondering, since you are right, both feet in the business, what kinds of things are new and fashionable? Um, I think that there's definitely been a huge push for underrepresented artists. So that's often women um, or, you know, people, minority people of color, different minority groups. Um, There's definitely a lot of galleries are now really looking to that those not the white male artists, I think, has been a huge theme that I've been seeing throughout. And you'll notice that in a lot of galleries is that um, people are really looking for different takes on identity and really looking to artists who are or outside of the, the traditional canon and, and who was underrepresented. Um, there are a lot of gallery programs who are looking at, you know, the the second or third tier artists who just didn't get the coverage that the Pollocks and the Warhols and the, the main players in the 50s and 60s and 70s got, but are incredible artists. And they just they just missed it at that time. So kind of resuscitating a lot of those artists, which I think is interesting. Um, and then new mediums, like we've already kind of talked about with um, works, fabric works, um, ceramics, there's there's definitely people are looking at outside of that traditional model. Um, but I see a lot of, a lot of, you know, and then, then it becomes almost stereotypical. It's like, oh, now there, there are all these female artists everywhere. Like, like museums have to show female artists because there's been so much of a critique of not showing them. Um, but that's, I think, an important critique that's, I'm glad that is now being finally addressed. Okay. Um, I think, uh, your job is fascinating and has a lot of subtleties involved. And, uh, I look forward to finding out more about it you know in the future when I run into you at these museum things uh, we sort of never really have chatted but uh, I think there are a lot of issues in your business that are quite fascinating I've appreciated this conversation oh good great no it's a treat to get to see both of you sort of pretty frequently I think that's you know, we circle back to the museum, but I think that's what's such a great thing about the museum council is it has the, on my calendar, I have this set events that are there and I know I'll get to see people through those events. So definitely look forward to chatting with you more. Are you guys going to go to the Ansel Adams talk next week? I, Julia, I, I, I think. think morning is not my mother's time of day. and yet (laughs) and yet i know in fact getting ready for the podcast at noon was a big to do so there you go (laughs) i will just say this too the more art and the art world is demystified the better it is and from my point of view and so these kinds of conversations i think can help people feel that it's not so opaque and impenetrable the the -hmm. world of the art market and the world of buying art and that you know a lot of people feel they can't go into a gallery unless they intend to buy something you know where they wouldn't hesitate to go into a some other kind of store to look at what they have i just think there's a kind of barrier that needs to be penetrated uh, about being able to feel that you can go and look at art and form ideas and you don't have to always be waving a pack of money. Absolutely. I mean, I think that 
you know, the galleries, particularly the galleries in Chelsea and in Manhattan have made it intimidating. You know, you walk in and it's not very friendly and prices are not readily available and if even available at all. And so that is, is definitely really intimidating to people, but the internet has totally transformed um, access to, to a lot of information and really sort of opened up um, I use Artnet's price database for auction records all the time. So you can have a really quick um, uh, exposure to what things are selling for and, and, and be armed with that knowledge when you go talk to people about pricing. You know, Hallie, I want people to follow you on Instagram. So what's your Instagram handle? Thank you. It's at Powell Fine Art Advisory. I know you post, like I said, a ton of photos from like galleries and museums and all sorts of places. Do you have any uh, photo taking rules? Like, do you ask galleries before you take photos or do are most people okay with it? Um, every gallery I've been to is, is okay with it. You know, museums will have signs that say photography is allowed or not. Um, the people who I ask are my clients because in many cases they really, it's a private home and they don't want their artwork out in the public space. And so when I when I do show artwork that's an installation that I've done, it's because I've asked the client and they've, they've okayed that. And do you also have a website where people can find you? Yes, it's um, www.palafineartadvisory.com. Okay, so we'll put all the links to that stuff. Great, thank you. Uh, anything else, you guys? No, I think this has been a good conversation. Oh, wonderful. It's been so nice. And thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk to me. You had great questions and I really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Uh, so if you would like to find me, you can find me at ballsdesigns.typepad.com and do leave us your comments or questions because we'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, use the hashtag artingpodcast, all one word, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And finally, if you like the show and you'd like to help support us, you can leave a review on iTunes because that helps other people find the show, which we like. So thank you so much for listening and subscribing and we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.